Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Well, welcome to Thursday Breakfast. It's um, one minute past seven. Um, and you're here with Shahrazad, who's me, Em, <laughs> Grace. <laughs> Sorry, you guys are just looking at me. I'm just like, I don't know. I should just start talking. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, what do we have on the show today? So, first up this morning, actually, in like just a minute or two, we're going to be chatting with Shantha Rao-Bariga, who is the founding director of the Disability Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. And we're going to be chatting with her around, I guess, around uh, disability advocacy, allyship, and also she's going to be speaking at the Wheeler Centre next week. Um, so she's still over in Belgium at the moment, but is going to be having a chat with us this morning, which is great. Then after that... Great interview. <laughs> Thanks, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> Hopefully it will be. Uh, and then, so later at 7.45, we're going to be talking to Carolyn Graydon, who's the manager of the Human Rights Law Program at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. So we're going to be talking about what's happening with asylum seekers that are in community, so in Australia at the moment, so their asylum claims, what's happening with Centrelink benefits, um, kind of all the crappy things that the government is doing to people that are living in community which is going to be really exciting to hear about, I think. And then at 10 minutes past 8, we're going to be talking to Merritt, who's from Shot Youth Prisons in Alice Springs. We're going to be talking about the new laws that they just passed that uh, apparently go against the Royal Commission findings from what happened at Dondale. Um, so apparently that went through really quickly, so I'm actually excited to get a bunch of information about what that means and what's happening at the moment in the Northern Territory. Yeah, because it's pretty terrifying. It's got, like, retrospective yeah. application. and mm. Yeah. It's also interesting in terms of, like, what, like, charges, what implications that's going to have for people getting charged for what they were doing to young Absolutely. kids in detention as well. Yeah. Which is pretty grim. And yeah. also about the Royal Commission. It's like, why have a Royal Commission if then you're just going to ignore all you the findings again and again and again? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Can't wait. And then I think in in between all of that, we might get some updates around the Japarong Embassy and also hear some recordings possibly from the Muslim Solidarity Rally as well. We appreciate, like, you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah, because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. 
How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know? Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 when I first come to this day, I was about 10 years ago, and, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and, and they called me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise it, like, pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor, you know, way back when. Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one thing at Tricia Community Radio, please subscribe now. Testami una ila ida Tricia Community Radio araja al istrak al an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli Tricia rai kertu kondir kondir Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuk ketsek radio i gayaranin oretain gudam elbumi hai kaotin. Hima artsanakrevetsek ifer Tricia rai antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name is Sybil. I'm occupying a tree sit, which is tensioned off by crazy spiderweb of tension ropes surrounding a, an extremely sacred tree um, out here just off the highway in Ararat. Um, the government wants to build a new highway and eradicate some very ancient sacred trees to indigenous people of this area. Um, I'm currently occupying a tree sit to stand in solidarity with indigenous people and ask the government to display their respect for this sacred land and to not continue the genocide of this country. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 8 past 7. Uh, and on the line, I think, I hope, we have Shantha Rao Bariga. Can you hear me, Shantha? Yes, good morning. How are you? Wonderful. Good morning. I'm really well. How are you going? Great, thank you. I was wondering, could you just briefly introduce yourself for listeners? Sure. So my name is Shantha Rao Bariga, and I'm the Director of Disability Rights at Human Rights Watch, and what that means is that uh, I lead a team that documents abuses against people with disabilities all around the world, and we do advocacy and push for change, uh, including in Australia. 
Amazing. And as we'll sort of talk about the end of the interview, you're coming to Melbourne, I think, next week um, to talk at the Wheeler Centre, which is really exciting. But to start off, I was wondering, how did you get into doing this work? Well, I started working on this issue about 15 years ago as part of my professional work, um, just uh, actually being involved in the drafting of the UN Treaty on the Rights of People with Disabilities that was being negotiated um, in New York. But I think since I was a kid, I was always doing voluntary work with the disability community and learned sign language and just felt like this was a community that was so marginalized and invisible in most of our lives that uh, it was nice to kind of move it from uh, something that I did on the weekends or from a personal perspective to something that I now do professionally for the last 15 years. And on... On 3CR Thursday Breakfast, we often talk about, um, you know, both challenging state violence and also interpersonal violence. And we know that people with disabilities around the world face disproportionate rates of violence, particularly women and girls with disabilities are almost twice as likely to experience violence than women without a disability. Why do mainstream campaigns um, against family violence so rarely centre the voices and the leadership of women and girls without disabilities? It's a great question, you know, and something that we do um, deal with in many of the countries where we work in. Uh, I think it's because women with disabilities often don't have a voice in the mainstream women's rights movements. They're not really a part of those movements, have not been included proactively. And so their issues, the struggles, the violence that they experience is, is just basically invisible. We did work in India, for example, just last year, and for the first time brought together mainstream women's rights groups and uh, disability advocates who were sitting at a table together and listening to each other's concerns and hearing how women, mainstream women's rights groups really need to take a more inclusive approach because at the end of the day, women with disabilities are women, um, and yet we find that in country after country, they're not really involved. Mm. And... So one thing, when I was researching this interview, um, I also found out a lot of things that I didn't even know around practices here in Australia that continue. For example, that there's no legislated ban against forced sterilisation of folks with a disability, which I, you know, to, to my shame, to my ignorance, was really horrified to find out. Um, you've been involved in some advocacy in Australia against um, forced mm-hmm. sterilisations. Why is it so important to understand this like horrific practice as a form of violence against women and what's been your involvement in that campaign? Well, can you, if you imagine if your right to have a family was taken away from you without your knowledge or your consent or with the consent obtained through uh, co- coercion or through just a family member, if you imagine you were sterilized because it was easier than teaching you about contraception or uh, helping you manage menstruation. I mean, for women who are sterilized, women with disabilities, it's like uh, the loss of, of their femininity, the loss of being a female. And, of course, we've seen that the motivation for sterilization is not come from a bad place. Parents or family members uh, of women or girls with disabilities often have a lot to to manage. They often face um, what to do if, um, in particular, a child, there was a case that I had followed some years ago in Australia where a child as young as 11 years old was 
uh, sterilized because it was difficult for the family to kind of help her manage menstruation. And there's often a lot, also a lot of fear that um, sterilization could help prevent an unwanted pregnancy. But in fact, what I find that um, in an effort to actually protect women from unwanted pregnancy, sterilizing them actually puts them more at risk of sexual assault because there is no consequence. There is no uh, visual uh, you know, uh, repercussion that one sees after a sexual assault if the woman is sterilized. And so it actually puts them at more risk of sexual violence. And we've seen and heard that from many women that we've talked to and their family members in different parts of the world. And sterilization is irreversible. Um, it's not an, an emergency medical treatment. Uh, and frankly, it's a form of violence against women and girls with disabilities. And I hope, you know, that we've been pushing together with some fantastic organizations like Women with Disabilities Australia and People with Disabilities Australia and groups like that in other countries is that there need to be more protections for um, the right to have a family and more protections against women with disabilities being at high risk of sexual abuse and exploitation. And this also raises the point that uh, discrimination against folks with disability clearly intersects with so many other forms of discrimination, be that um, mm-hmm. sexism, misogyny or you know, racism across the world. But I guess I wanted to focus particularly on here in Australia, uh, discrimination mm-hmm. against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability and particularly the incarceration of First Nations people with a disability at incredibly high rates around the country. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, yet linking that to other forms of state-sanctioned violence against First Nations folk here. Um, could you talk a bit about, you know, drawing on, I guess, international learnings um, and the work that you do, how we can and must, you know, hold the state accountable for the for state sanctioned violence, particularly against First Nations folks with disability. Absolutely. Uh, uh, actually, um, if you look at the statistics, it's staggering how people with disabilities, particularly those with psychosocial uh, or disabilities such as uh, mental health conditions, as well as cognitive disabilities, are dramatically overrepresented in the criminal justice system in Australia. So here's some statistics: uh, people with disabilities make up 18% of the country's population, but 50% of people in prison. And as you mentioned, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they comprise just 2% of the national population, yet 28% of those in adult prison. And so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disabilities are actually the most at risk uh, of being behind bars. And we actually launched a report uh, just about one year ago in Australia where uh, we documented um, the abuse that prisoners experience, mostly prisoners with various types of disabilities, the abuse and the neglect that they undergo in prison. Uh, they struggle to cope in overcrowded prisons. Um, they're victims of sexual and physical abuse by fellow prisoners, uh, and they rarely report it because of the fear of reprisals. Uh, one form of violence that we particularly documented is solitary confinement. People in prison who spend days, weeks, and sometimes even years isolated, 22 hours a day under constant surveillance with little meaningful human interaction. And, you know, we met actually one 
young man whom we called uh, Waru in the report. And he's an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man. Um, and he was subjected to solitary confinement, physical abuse, and racial slurs in prison. He told us, the senior officer stood on my jaw while the other officer hit my head and restrained me. They said, you don't run this prison, we do. And they cut off my clothes. They left me naked on the floor of the exercise yard for a couple of hours before giving me fresh clothes. So you can see the kind of conditions that people with disabilities, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, experience in prisons and the violence that they have to undergo. And I guess important to raise as well that, you know, those experiences, the stories that you've just shared aren't exceptional. You know, that this violence happens every day against people with disability and Aboriginal and Torres people with disability in prison. Um, And we often see prisons, you know, using solitary confinement, for example, to, you know, quote unquote, manage um, mental health conditions. Um, Yeah, in horrifying ways. And on that note, I also, like, listeners may be unaware that, you know, legislation in some Australian states and territories actually allows for indefinite detention of people with intellectual or psychosocial disabilities without Mm -hmm. conviction. Um, Could you give some insight there? Sure. See, what we found is that, uh, as you said, people with cognitive or psychosocial disabilities are often or sometimes considered unfit to stand trial. Um, So in, in, in court, there's a presumption of fitness, and in some cases there's a test to assess the fitness uh, that may be ap- applied, um, this test determines whether the the person has a capacity to understand the nature of the charges, the court proceedings, um, what the defense has to offer, and if they can actually explain the version of the facts to the court. And if they pass, if they fail to pass this test, then they're considered unfit to plead and cannot be tried. But then what happens is they're still stuck in prison. Um, there's actually not a lot of transparency about how many people are actually in de- detained indefinitely under this um, unfit to plead uh, category. But uh, there was a Senate inquiry on indefinite detention that estimated that there are at least 100 people who are with uh, disabilities who are in de- detained without conviction under the mental impairment legislation. And, and that's something that... Um, We've drawn attention to in our work as well as a lot of local organizations in Australia. Um, and in our report last year, we had a number of recommendations that, you know, where we, where we wanted to see change and where we banded together with not only um, disability organizations in Australia, but also indig- organizations of indigenous people, I should mention, First Peoples uh, organization as well, who were key partners to us. Um, and you know, that includes the need to train staff, the need to have regular and independent monitoring, and uh, as we talked about, the need to end solitary confinement, which is really a, a form of, of violence and uh, degrading treatment and can only exacerbate the conditions in many cases. 
Absolutely. And I feel like for pe- yeah, people without, you know, lived experience of incarceration or without lived experience of, um, of disability, you know, people can forget that there are so many, what are called, you know, secure or forensic mental health facilities around the country, which are, you know, yet other forms mm-hmm. of prisons, um, where so many folks exactly. are locked away. Um, and I also really appreciate you doing the shout out to, you know, First People's Disability Network does really incredible work, um, in this space. And yep. we'd love to have them on board the show in the next few weeks. Um, but a few last questions before we wrap up. Um, I wonder if we could also talk about the importance of, of visibility and centering the experiences of people with a disability um, who are seeking refuge and asylum in Australia. Because, again, in the mainstream media, this isn't something that gets um, a lot of airtime. And, you know, particularly, again, uh, drawing on from our last question, you know, folks, whether they're in um, onshore or offshore immigration prisons, um, yeah, I'd really value, I guess, your thoughts here around, again, the experiences and leadership of people with disabilities seeking asylum and refuge in Australia. Well, as you know, you know, thousands of refugees live in really difficult tr- conditions, trapped on Papua New Guinea and Nauru as a result of Australia's policy of, of offshore processing. And, you know, even last year in July, the United Nations Refugee Agency observed just the high level of tension and the deterioration in the mental health of refugees and asylum seekers uh, on Manus Island, for example. Um, we've been working with a wonderful advocate who's a young woman with uh, who's a refugee herself from Syria and who now lives in Germany um, on this advocacy. She'll actually be traveling with me uh, next week to Australia and we'll be at that event at, at the Wheeler Center that we'll mention in a minute. Um, and, you know, we were talking just recently and she reminded me that, you know, when you're a refugee, you're just a number. And she told me, you know, but we are more than that. We're people, we're humans. And when you think about the conditions in um, the offshore sites in uh, Australia, there's actually um, the conditions are, are harrowing and the fact that we need to consider them as, as human beings is, I think, central to the what the policies should be going forward. I mean, what's good to hear in Australia is that since 2012, there's been an increase in the number of refugees with disabilities who've been brought into the mainland, but there hasn't been a subsequent increase in much-needed support services. So there was a report that came out in February this year by the Refugee Council of Australia, the National Ethnic Disability Alliance, the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia, and the Settlement Council of Australia. And they found that refugees with disabilities living in Australia face a number of barriers to inclusion from the lack of access to mobility devices and other essential daily aids to the lack of adequate uh, housing. And, you know, one refugee with disability whom they included in the report who arrived in Australia was placed in a short-term accommodation that didn't meet her needs. And when she wanted to take a shower, her husband had to carry her to a taxi and then accompany her to a local sports center that had an accessible bathroom. They needed to pay for the taxi. They needed to pay for entry to the sports center. And this kind of exemplifies the need for better services uh, available to refugees with disabilities. Frankly, um, you know, in general across Australia and other countries, the the need to ensure that humanitarian assistance is accessible um, for for all the people's needs uh, is something that we've been trying to highlight. Um, and 
you know, I think the Australian government is well placed in its efforts to support humanitarian, you know, inclusive humanitarian assistance in different parts of the world, including just off its shores. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Our guest is Shantha Rao Bariga. Um, Shantha, I was wondering, could we now move on to talking about the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse and Neglect Against People with a Disability that the Australian Government has just committed to and Mm -hmm. what your views are on this and particularly why it's so important for, um, you know, commission, for for there to be folks with lived experience of disability um, represented on the appointed commission board, um, which wasn't looking likely when it first got announced. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it was in a positive move in February. The Australian Parliament voted for this Royal Commission on to look into violence and abuse and neglect experienced by people with disabilities in Australia. I mean, what was disappointing to us is that the government really didn't give a timeline uh, to set up the commission. And uh, what was unclear is if people with disabilities will actually be on the commission. And during the the whole negotiations on the UN treaty on the rights of people with disabilities and the lead up to so much of the efforts that Australia is actually leading is um, is this principle of the disability movement called nothing about us without us. And I think that it's essential that the commission include people with lived experience, people from the movement who um, do represent the voice of persons with disabilities um, to honor not only the slogan, but even just the, uh, Australia's obligations under the treaty to make sure that they have meaningful participation and voice in all of the policies and, and programs that uh, impact them. Um, I think it would be es- essential for the, um, the Royal Commission to include somebody with a disability or multiple people who are experts with disabilities, and, and we hope that they'll, they'll do that going forward. And Shanta, as someone who yourself doesn't have a disability working in this space, mm-hmm. what are your views on allyship? Yeah, it's a good question uh, because um, I've been working in this field for a really long time and I uh, often wonder, you know, how that's, uh, people perceive that, um, even people within the disability community. And I must say, um, I think that uh, in general, there's a real need to have people um, with disabilities as the driving force, as the key voices, as um, part, as I said, of this nothing about us without us uh, principle uh, to be actually realized. Uh, and at the same time, people without disabilities need to be part of the conversation because um, without a that inclusion, then it'll just be people with disabilities talking among themselves. So I've been told in, in various settings that, in fact, when a, someone with a disability is advocating for their rights, government officials may look at them and say, well, you know, they have a vested interest in this issue. But someone who doesn't have a disability, who is equally passionate about uh, ensuring that they have just the same rights as anybody else, um, you know, might be perceived by the government or or um, others that, who have the power to change uh, the way the laws are applied or, or formed um, might take notice because you see that they, they see that this is something that um, is about non-discrimination. It's about equality. It's about inclusion. And uh, I think it's important to have both people with disabilities and without at the table. And I've been fortunate to be able to be involved in the movement, and I've learned so much from people with lived experience. So I wouldn't... Um, 
trade in any way that the voice that they have, but I think there's place in, for enough of us at the table since um, there's a lot to to get done. And I think that's such a valuable point about, you know, it has to be always about the leadership of people with lived experience of disability and particularly First Nations folk and people of colour with disability, but that, you know, mm-hmm. the rest of us need to be part of that conversation as well and also need to be holding the government to account as to why they're not listening to, like, first and foremost, exactly. to people with lived experience as well. Absolutely. Um, and just to wrap up, because we are out of time, can you tell us about the upcoming event that you'll be speaking at at the Wheeler Centre next week and how listeners can find yes. out more? Sure. I'm so delighted to be coming um, to Australia and to be speaking at the Wheeler Centre. The event is on April 5th uh, from 6.15 to 7.15 p.m., uh, and as I mentioned before, I'll be uh, joined with my dear friend, Nujin Mustafa, who's a young woman from Syria, a refugee with disability herself. Um, and we'll be talking about displacement. We'll be talking about detention, uh, about how the people with disabilities are isolated and excluded in so many ways uh, and from her lived experience and then from the work that we've done uh, in a range of countries, including particularly on work we've done in the Asia region and India and Indonesia and, and elsewhere. So I'm excited to, to be there. And, uh, and the event is called Nevertheless, uh, because one of the things that we've seen, that I've seen, I've uh, heard again and again from people with disabilities talking to me, saying that they're often treated as less than human. And so we hope to actually dispel that and try to bring a human voice and a human face to the issue together with Eugene and I. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Shantha. You can find out more if you jump on the Wheeler Centre website um, and have a great day. Great. Thank you so much. VCR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to our Trisia Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Testimony on Ila Ida Trisia Community Radio Araja Al Istrakal An. Ningal Ungalin Samuha Banali Trisia Ray Kurt Kondir Kondir Kal. Rinri Nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio I Gayanin or a Tangudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin. Hima Artanakrovetsek Iper Trisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2.
So last Tuesday um, on March 21, thousands of people met on the steps of the State Library in Melbourne to protest white supremacy and to show solidarity with our Muslim friends and family. So um, we're going to be playing a few excerpts from that rally. Uh, so first up, we've got Raj Amedi from Colour Code, um, a coalition of First Nation and migrant communities. Thank you so much for coming out here. My name is Rouge Amedi. I'm a racial justice campaigner, but I'm also a former refugee from Iraq, feeling the compounding effects of racism in this country. Before I start, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of this land. And I want to acknowledge, just like Luke Hilakari did, that there was a frontline resistance to protect sacred Japurong birthing trees right now, right here today. And that is a constant fight that has been happening for over 230 years, but in particular the last nine months. And I want to acknowledge the warriors of the Aboriginal resistance for leading the way in that resistance. I also want to acknowledge that today was the first initial hearing for Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day, who was a black woman who fell asleep on the train and the consequences for her was death in custody of the police. And I want to hold space... I want to hold space for her family and her community that are rising up against a deeply violent and political context and fighting for justice for her, but as well as other First Nations people that continue to die in the hands of our institutions. The last few days has been emblematic of what people of colour and First Nations people continue to experience in this country. When things happen to us, whether violent or benign or secretive or coded, we never have space to talk about it. And we never have space to lead our own movements. And that is why I'm here today. But I also want to acknowledge that in that space, we need to acknowledge that many members of the Muslim community are going through a period of mourning and cannot be here today. And we need to acknowledge that they are taking care of their communities and continuing to resist the ongoing Islamophobia that they face every day. I'm not here to preach to the choir. We have seen how vitriolic, jingoist, and harmful division has been spread through words and acts in our media and politics. But what we're experiencing in words is no accident. Over 20 years ago, with the rise of John Howard as our Prime Minister in 1996, the same year that I came to Australia, we saw a concerted effort to deny people of colour and First Nations people equal rights and to go back thousands and thousands of steps. The first thing they did was to distract us to see the refugees and people seeking safety as the initial enemy. And while they did that, they reduced and removed equal rights for other people that were trying to build their lives in this country, whether they were migrants from all around the world or First Nations people. What they do is they claim a, you know, a clear enemy, and then they slowly deny the structural access to many forms of legal equalities. That includes welfare, that includes denying over 1.2 million people in this country who are on temporary visas that are denied their legal rights and no avenues for permanent settlement. And those people are open to, open to harm by corporations and 
and prop up three major industries in this country. So our issue when we're fighting against racism is not just words, but also the structural things that affect working class people that give us the benefits for people who are permanent permanent residents in this country and we need to start thinking about that. Who is being silenced and who is being denied access to our movements? I also want to identify that white supremacy is not along just racial lines. It is anti-working class, it's anti-disability, it's anti-trans, anti-intersex. They have many, many enemies and there are silent concerted efforts to confirm and approve all of these different ideologies. But it is happening silently, so we must remain vigilant and understand our movements need to reach across these various communities and center these communities. We need to identify when extremists who are given the protection of parliamentary positions like Senator Fraser Anning are used as shields by mainstream politicians. While they declare things that are obtuse, other mainstream politicians, as we have seen in previous, uh, previous statements made by other speakers, get to dog whistle. But with that dog whistle means that they're structurally denying people who should have equal rights in this country. And we need to be aware of those distraction methods. I also ask of you in our progressive movements to not only refute the opposition, but say and articulate what we believe in. Step into the floor. What are we fighting for? What is our vision? Do not be afraid to articulate it. Because when we constantly refute, when we're constantly on the back foot, we deny other people access to our ideas, our ways that we're going to progress forward. We deny ourselves a vision beyond the constraints that we experience today. I want to acknowledge that I work for Colour Code. Thousands of people around the country who are people of colour and First Nations people have come together to fight for racial justice and confront the structural consequences of racism. But I'm part of an ecosystem, our ecosystem, and we should never forget that. We need to reach across. We need to understand that it, makes many, it takes many, many hands, many movements, many theories of change, and we need to move forward together. Thank you. So we were just listening to Rouge uh, Mehdi from Colour Code at uh, last Tuesday's uh, rally to show solidarity with um, our Muslim friends and family. Next up, we'll listen to Maud Halmi from the Islamic Council of Victoria. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. What a beautiful gathering today. Thank you very much all for coming, even though it's a sad occasion. Um, I've been given the opportunity to speak today and I, um, I'll share some thoughts with you. Number one, I guess, is that, as we all know, 50 people have been mercilessly killed and more critically injured over, uh, during the Friday prayers last week. As many of you would know, that Friday prayers is a weekly ritual that Muslims uh, do every week. So the perpetrator in this case knew exactly what they were doing they, they, he timed himself and he knew exactly that these people are going to be defenseless and they were an easy target. The, he killed them in cold blood. We, from, this, from here, 
from Melbourne, we send our condolences, our prayers, solidarity and thoughts with the families of the people who passed and with the injured. Secondly, the Australian Muslim community, the Victorian Muslim community are absolutely horrified and shocked with what happened. And particularly that one of the perpetrators, the main perpetrator was Australian. And that hurts and that's close to home. On, on the positive side, on the positive side, the Islamic community and the Islamic Council of Victoria has received so much love, so much solidarity. And over the last 48 hours, I have never, ever seen anything like it before. For those who attended, for those who attended the open mosque, the open mosque yesterday, 22 mosques across Melbourne opened the doors and welcomed people. And literally, tens of thousands of people attended the mosques. I, I, visited, I visited three mosques. I could not enter through the door from the numbers of people in it. Thirdly, and despite what the Australian media um, wants to call what happened, and despite what some people in our government wants to call it, what happened in New Zealand was a terrorist attack. And the murderers are terrorists, even though they are white. Some described what happened as unprecedented, and indeed it is unprecedented in magnitude, but it is not unprecedented in ideology. Muslims, and particularly Muslim women, suffer every day from hatred, racism, and vilification in public spaces and on our public transport systems. And you only need to speak to one of them to know that. One, one fr a friend of mine, she reported on the next day, she took a train on Saturday morning here in Melbourne, here in Melbourne, and she put that on her Facebook page. As she walked off the train, somebody put, gestured a gun at her as she walked off the train. On the next day, on the next day after what happened, Fraser Anning, Fraser Anning, released a statement that you will have all seen by now, most popular, essentially justifying the terrorist attack in New Zealand. He said, what it, and I quote, what it highlights is the growing fear within our community, both in Australia and New Zealand, of the increasing Muslim presence. This, my brothers and sisters, is hate. This is ignorance. This is lack of humanity. That is what Muslims deal with on a daily basis. People like Anning sit on our parliament with his far-right-wing friends and legislate for us. Politicians and media must realize that evil acts don't happen in a vacuum. Relentless Islamophobic rhetoric fear-mongering against the Muslims, often by those in public domain, give permission for this to happen. They give the license for this to happen. Hate rhetoric kills people. 
because it dehumanizes them. But Anning is not the only one. A few months ago, Pauline Hansen said, and I quote again, that Muslims are a virus that we should vaccinate against. The people next, standing next to you now, she called them a virus that we need to vaccinate against. That, that is a license to kill. And we need to, make, to hold our politicians to account that they don't give license to kill. The, our parliament, there is no place in our parliament for people like Fraser Anning and Pauline Hansen. There is no place and a line needs to be drawn. And as Adam just said before, that this is the beginning of the end of this kind of hate speech in our parliament. Finally, I would like to say that for, for the first time in history that I know of, the Islamic Council of Victoria had yesterday launched a petition. And the petition has actually been linked and supported by the one and a half million petition calling for um, Fraser Anning to, get, to, to be kicked off parliament. That, so, so, so the ICV, in collaboration with that, with that particular um, uh, petition, are calling for a code of conduct in our parliament so we can hold politicians accountable for what they say and for, their, for the consequences of what they say. So I ask you please to go to change.org and I want at least 1,000 more signatures today before we go home. Okay? Thank you very much. So that was um, Mohad Halmi from the Islamic Council of Victoria. Next up, we have Hussein Al-Qatari uh, from the National Unions of, Union of Workers Rep um, at the chem Chemist Warehouse strike. Hi, everyone. Um, a good picture for uh, unity is everyone here from different race, from different background, from different religion, standing together as, as one against racism. The act of evil wants to divide us, so what we have to say is that we are united, we are strong, and, and uh, we're going to remain strong against the act of evil. Um, <laughs> racism wants to divide us as a nation, and we have to stand strong as one. They want to normally divide to rule, and we have to say no to the to the people that want to divide us. A good example is uh, everyone going to work like in Melbourne from different background, from different race. Um, our people, especially like in the picket line in uh, 51 Philo Drive in Somerton, from different background, Islander, Muslims, Christian, Jewish, um, Indians and Asian. That's a good, a good example of unity. Another point I would like to like raise is that religion doesn't have anything to do with racism. Religion is the way you act and behave either at your house or here or in public. So 
and there is nothing that linked religion to racism. Um, people ask why we are on strike in Kimis Warehouse. Kimis Warehouse uh, workers on strike due to low wages. They getting paid 25% lower than uh, the industry. Um, 75 percent of the workers in chemist warehouse in unsecured jobs. They are all labor hire workers. Um, they seeking like a safe workplace, free from sexual harassment, as a lot of women in the, in the workplace uh, have been sexually harassed. Thanks, everyone. So that was Hussein al-Qatari speaking at last Tuesday's rally um, at the State Library to show solidarity with our Muslim friends and family. Um, and so he's the rep at the chemist warehouse strike. So just a reminder that the chemist warehouse workers are still on strike for pay parity, job security, and to put an end to a toxic workplace culture. So you can visit the picket lines at 51 Philo Drive, Summit, so, so, Somerton, um, 44 Raglan Street in Preston, and 41 Trade Coast Drive in Eagle Farm. So donations for the Workers' Strike Fund can be made at chuffed.org. Um, and for updates uh, from the National Union of Workers, you can follow them on Twitter, which is at NAT Union Workers, or online at nuw.org.au. Um, and for more, um, and of course, 3CR's Stick It Together program, um, which is three, uh, which you can follow online at 3cr.org.au forward slash Stick Together every Wednesdays at 8:30 a.m. And just a shout out to Will from Wednesday Breakfast for those recordings. <laughs> We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian-made, and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey, and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 94198377, or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. So next up, we have Carolyn Graydon, Manager of Human Rights Law Program at ASRC. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> Very good, thank you. Good. Um, so before we start, can you just explain a little bit about the work that the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So um, look, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre uh, works with people who are seeking asylum in Australia and also has provided a lot of support, uh, legal assistance and other support to people seeking asylum on Manus and Nauru. Um, the legal team uh, acts for people who have lodged protection visa applications, so we act for people at all stages of the refugee determination process. And we have about 24 or 25 other programs that provide a sort of wraparound support service 
you know, from employment to housing to a food bank to counselling and social services, women's empowerment, youth empowerment programs, recognising that, you know, often people's legal problem might sit at the heart of their problem, but they have many other non-legal needs as well. So um, that's a little bit about the ASRC. Cool, thank you. Um, so last time we got the ASRC on Thursday breakfast was maybe two years ago, and we were talking about the fast-track process for asylum claims for people that are um, living in community. Can you just yep. explain what that process was and then also now what's happening with those claims? Yeah, sure. So the fast-track process was introduced as a as a, a punitive measure, really, to punish those who um, sought asylum in Australia who arrived by boat. So the whole idea of it was that they'd be taken out of the usual system and provided with less rights, um, with, with really the object of ensuring that they weren't successful in their claims. So the fast-track process resulted in uh, people first having to wait for five or six years to even be invited to make an application for asylum. And during that period, you know, they were just sort of left in limbo with no clear pathway towards being able to lodge an application for a visa at all. Um, then after lodging the application, there would be a process through the department and it was um, a, an extremely tight deadline set for everybody uh, in October 2018. And that put enormous pressure on all the pro bono actors in the community who had to suddenly drop tools and um, support um, the ASRC and the other legal providers through out-of-hours clinics, weekend clinics, to make sure that no person was disadvantaged by not being able to lodge uh, within time. Now, since that time, um, some people have worked through the department stage and then there's what's called the Immigration Assessment Authority, which was a substandard merits review authority for those um, who weren't recognised as refugees at the department stage. And this process is just fundamentally flawed because it doesn't provide a right to a hearing for people. They basically usually decide on the papers whether a person meets the definition of a refugee or not, and they only give 21 days for people to provide limited written reasons for why the departmental delegate got the decision wrong in the first place. And bearing in mind that many departmental decisions, they arrive in English, they might be 40 pages long. Most of our clients um, don't speak English or have limited English language skills, and there are no, there's very, very limited government assistance available for providing legal support to people um, in the fast-track stream. So at that point then, some clients um, have that we're seeing now, um, they're being refused by the Immigration Assessment Authority. Some are being successful, but it's a pretty high refusal rate, um, which I think reflects also the, the fact that it's not really a genuine merits review process. Um, and then we have some clients that are now in the court system, and of course that's a very lengthy, cumbersome system. So... Some people have been here for, well, we had some that arrived before the fast-track system who were later then put back into the fast-track system who've been here for 10 years. Um, so it's an extremely protracted <coughs> process designed to create great hardship and uncertainty throughout that period. Um, and we really see now the consequences of that on the human beings who come um, into our, our centre every day. We see people with very high levels of mental uh, health problems, um, and they've been so subject to fairly acute economic and social deprivation. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just tragic, tragic to watch, you know, the human fallout of what have been um, extremely harsh and unfair policies 
that have no basis in international law or human rights law. There's no reason, there's no justification for a government um, setting up a different asylum process based on mode of arrival to a country. And um, we're very much hoping and through our policy and advocacy work that, uh, that this deeply flawed process will be abolished um, after the next election and we'll hopefully be able to restore uh, some people's rights. Um, and because I, I failed to mention the other thing is that after people go through all of that process, they only get a temporary visa, mm. um, which means it has to be renewed in either three or five years' time. And that means that people are just indefinitely in this state of temporary limbo and denied the opportunity to be reunited, even with their immediate family members. So it's really a very cruel system, and we hope to see the end of it soon. Mm. Thanks for that explanation. That was really great. Um, so it is really confusing. So I guess if I, so if I say that people uh, apply and then goes to the department, the department makes a decision. If it's a no, then they can appeal through the other body that you talked about. And then what's the process if there's a double decision but that's no? Like what does that yeah. mean that people are living in community without a visa or? Well, see, it's an automatic referral to the Immigration Assessment Authority. They don't mm-hmm. actually have to appeal. So that's sort of an automatic review. Yeah. After that, if they get that double negative that you mentioned, then um, their only option then is to seek judicial review. Mm-hmm. And judicial review is different from merits review in the sense that you don't get a chance to re-argue your case, you know, to explain why the first two decision-makers got the actual outcome of the decision wrong. You only have a chance to identify whether it was lawfully made, whether the procedure was properly followed. Um, so you're really just looking for a technical error in the way that the decision was made. That's the only um, aspect relevant to judicial review. And when if, if and when you win that, then the case just gets remitted back to the earlier decision maker for a new decision according to law. So it's not even like that will necessarily result in a changed outcome for the person. Mm-hmm. And the judicial review stage can, at the moment, there's such a huge backlog, it's taking you know around three years for cases to be heard. And during that period, um, and more recently, um, less and less people are being granted bridging visas. And the bridging visa is this sort of temporary visa that keeps people legally in the community while they've got their other case going on. And in the absence of a bridging visa, people become unlawful, meaning that they are, the department is obliged to detain them um, and remove them from the country as soon as possible. Now, while the department isn't necessarily rounding up people and detaining them and removing them while they've still got their court actions going on, um, you know, firstly, that's, the law's not being complied with because it's impracticable for the department to even do that. But the practical consequence of not having a bridging visa for people is firstly just living in that constant state of anxiety about being picked up and potentially being detained, limiting people's <coughs> life choices and freedom of movement. Secondly, they won't have work rights. Thirdly, they're not at that point entitled to any kind of social support. So there's no means of income for them to survive. No access to Medicare and no access to study rights as well. So for people with kids, you know, they're no longer able to attend public schools. Um, and you, or, or universities, not that people, people seeking asylum are eligible for university in any event. But the fact that it's such a long process as well just means that it's an incredibly difficult um, period for people, and we're seeing more and more people in that situation now. Mm-hmm. Do you have rough numbers about how many people that are living in community are facing 
um, all those hardships at the moment? Well, there's also an additional issue, which is that since August last year, the Immigration Department has been taking people off SRSS, which is the sort of um, social security that was available to a small group of people seeking asylum. Um, And it's pegged at 89% of Centrelink, so it's a really miserly amount in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, But they started first uh, taking single men off this payment, um, for, or single people up until the end of last year. But as of the beginning of this year, they've started taking families off that payment as well. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we've just seen the absolute horror stories of people turning up at the centre, mm-hmm. completely destitute, homeless, and the lack of kind of capacity for, um, you know, in the homeless sector generally in terms of housing for people that are homeless in Victoria mm-hmm. is so dire that no one has any stretch or give. And so the reality is that there are now a lot of people that are doing it hard and living on the streets. And that's adjusted, adapted the way we've had to provide food in our centre. We used to provide a lot more <clears throat> food for people to take home and cook in their kitchens, but now we need a lot more ready-to-eat food because many people don't have a kitchen anymore. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that sort of cycle um, played out. In terms of the actual numbers, I mean, I think here in, in Victoria we have um, at least to 250 to 300 families, I believe, that are in that situation who have been taken off SRSS this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it amounts to around four and a half to 5,000 people um, who, who, who are now, who were previously on a SRSS payment who no longer have one, so, or, or are about to be cut off. So it's quite a, a large group of people mm-hmm. uh, living here with us um, who are really... You know, I think most people are really shocked to hear that there is a category of people that is just excluded from everything, um, that there's, there is absolutely zero support. And, and us at the ASRC, we're often the bottom line for people. There's nowhere further for people to go after us. And we've just been unable to, to cope with the deluge of need. Mm-hmm. Are there other organisations that are stepping into this space and trying to support people as well? I think local councils have sort of come together and been really uh, played a very positive part because it is quite a big problem, bigger than what we can certainly cope with. Um, but the housing has been the real crunch issue. Um, it seems that, that nobody has capacity on housing and that's why, you know, we've gone to the state government as well and said, look, this is a situation that you really need to step in now and provide some additional resources or you know, the results are catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I mean, we're working very hard on our advocacy and policy change um, approaches to try and um, in- ensure that, you know, that whether there's a change of government or not, that these harsh and cruel policies um, that are, you know, unlawful in interna- by international standards are, are, are stopped immediately. Mm-hmm. We, we have seen in the ALP's national platform that they have committed to abolishing the fast-track process, including the Immigration and Assessment Authority, and to um, restoring permanent visas to those currently on temporary visas. Um, and that would that would ameliorate the situation to some degree. And they've also committed to restoring SRSS and provide uh, more, you know, sort of basic living sustenance support for people seeking asylum. So that's something. There's still many other aspects of the process that um, that commitments haven't been made to that are fundamentally unjust, but that's at least something that um, has been publicly announced and we'd be working hard to hold the ALP accountable to their national platform if they were to form a new government. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So how do people get involved in this or support the work that the ASRC are doing or other organisations as well? Oh, there's lots of different ways. I think um, at the ASIC we have, you know, a, a big network of supporters. So we have some people that come and volunteer their time. They come, they make a commitment a day a week for at least a year. So it's quite a big commitment. And we do advertise publicly when we are recruiting for new volunteers. We also have a lot of wider supporters. So we've got all lots of people who respond to Conal CEO's tweets, requests for food of particular sorts, what particular items we need in the food bank. We have lots of people that come in with shopping bags full of food and it's just wonderful that they help like that. We also have a lot of people that help us with fundraising um, and make contributions there because um, we are independent. We don't receive government funds and we have a policy against receiving any Commonwealth funding so we're, still, we're, we're dependent on philanthropic uh, trusts and also the public for donations and support. So we have a, a range of appeals that go on throughout the year and at the moment, we have a wonderful campaign of Feast for Freedom, which is where um, a person who wants to support the work of the ASRC hosts a dinner party for their friends. Um, and they cook one of the beautiful recipes that's been um, uh, gifted to us by one of our um, members So from Afghanistan. There's different kinds of cuisine that you can choose from to host a dinner party. And then the dinner guests have conversations and discuss um, the issues for people seeking asylum and also make a contribution um, that helps support our work at the ASIC. So that's um, all happening this weekend in terms of um, feasts going on um, and we'll be doing further feasts down the track as well. So that would be one practical and hopefully lovely way that people can bring their friends around the table um, and at the same time show their support for the work that we're doing with people seeking asylum. Cool, sounds great. Um, so thank you very much for your time and coming on Thursday Breakfast. We really appreciate it. No, very welcome. Anytime. Thanks for having me. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows. 
3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Uh, this is um, not uh, the end of it. Um, uh, mob are still coming. Um, supporters are still descending on the land. They're still um, getting here um, to the landscape. So, um, yeah, very, very, um, very pleased. Um, but at the same time, I'm very saddened that we have to come and, and do this to, you know, to save what's, what's, what's our religious and our cultural uh, beliefs that we are in kin with. Yeah, I think that's just about it. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It's 12 past, or well, 13 past 8 now. Um, we just want to share a few quick updates about the Jabarong Embassy. Um, so we just found out that, I think, am I right, Sherry, that um, Vic Rhodes have said that they will postpone works until the 23rd of April yeah, or after that? Tw- 22nd. So, 22nd. yeah, major road projects. Um, and, that, and that was yesterday. Um, so gave an undertaking that no works will happen until... Um, after April um, 22nd um, and that was after like a 48 hour uh, stop work uh, which I, I think happened start well it ended um, the same day I mean yesterday mm. yeah yeah and this has also been a really momentous week mm-hmm. um, because on Monday we found out that um, the so the unions um, decide, came out and backed the Jabberwang Embassy, which is a really, you know, amazing and historic move. Um, and in the media release that was sent around on Monday, um, you know, it was said that over 70 Jabberwang traditional owners and their supporters um, had met that weekend um, to discuss, you know, what was going on up at camp um, and the amazing resistance that folks there um, continue to engage with and that one of the key... Um, activists and spokespeople and traditional owner herself, Mariki Onus, had met with um, the Victorian Trades Hall and was able to announce that um, the group had the support um, of Trades Hall on Monday, which is really incredible. Mm. Yeah, especially... Um, yeah, especially... Uh, so I, I went out there on Tuesday um, and just, like, getting an update on... on what trees had been had the government had decided, you know, to save, uh, which were the Burfin trees, um, which were I think four trees in total, uh, but there was still one tree um, which wasn't a Burfin tree that they were like, oh no, we can still um, take that one down, you know. So I think there's still quite a lot of work to be done, and I think Japarang. Uh, embassy still needs support. Um, you can find out more um, either on on social media, so you can go on um, just type in Jabberwang Embassy, or you can go uh, online. So it's dwembassy.com, uh, um, and then that you have all the latest updates there as well. Yeah. And they definitely yeah still need people up at camp um, in the next you know month 
Um, just because we've got this announcement doesn't mean that you still don't need people up there and also still you can contribute funds um, to the fundraiser as well. So yeah, show your support any way you can. Mm. Yeah, and it doesn't mean um, colonisation has stopped. Um, next up we have um, Merit from um, Shut Youth Prisons in Bantwe. Good morning. Hey. Hey, how are you going? Yeah, good. Yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Thank you for getting up super early. I know that it's really early in Alice Springs. Um, so I guess that youth prison and youth detention has been in the media a lot the last couple of years in the Northern Territory. Can you maybe start with what happened at Dondale and then with the Royal Commission as like kind of a starting point? Sure. Um, so as you probably have would have seen, like two and a half years ago, there was a Four Corners report or more. A bit more, um, that detailed the abuse and torture of young people in the NT, mm-hmm. um, you know, with kids being shackled to chairs and fit-hooded, left isolated in cells for, you know, weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. Um, from that Royal Commission, from that Falklands report, there was then a Royal Commission call and that went into... It was, a re- it was like one of the shortest Royal Commissions in Australia. Um, it was really rushed, but um, that detailed a lot more abuses that happened in the prisons here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that got its findings handed down um, about a year ago. So, 20, so tw- September, um, November 17th, 2017. Mm-hmm. And um, we haven't really seen a lot of action from that, from the Ghana government. So um, part of the recommendations were closing Dondale, um, getting kids to have more connection with their family, um, limits on the guards' use of force, um, those kind of things. And so what we're seeing from the new laws that got passed through by Dale Wakefield last week, so Dale Wakefield's the Minister for Territory Families here in the NT, and she um, is the minister responsible for youth prisons in the NT, mm-hmm. as well as for child protection. And she passed these laws last week that uh, reversed amendments that they made um, in response to the Four Corners Report. And a lot of the legal fraternity are saying that these amendments look like they allow worse the kind of torture that's as bad as, or if not worse, than what we see in, in the Royal Commission and in the Four Corners Report. So everyone's really worried here, but it's also everyone's been blindsided because she didn't consult any of the legal organisations, not, not, not the Northern Aboriginal Justice Agency, not... Northern Territory Legal Aid, not the criminal lawyers for the NT. She didn't talk to any of the Aboriginal organisations. She didn't talk to any of the NGOs, and she didn't talk to any members of the community. Mm-hmm. And when she introduced the bill into Parliament, she um, blocked standing orders so that she forced that bill in, you know, in the two days that Parliament was sitting. Yeah. So, so what's... Um, mm. Everyone's really worried. Yeah. So what's actually... But, yeah. What's actually in the bill? Like, what does that mean for the kids that are in youth detention? So it's um, it affects transfer. So it affects um, it gives the 
guards greater discretion and the superintendent greater discretion to just decide when when to transfer a kid from Alice Springs to Dondale. So it's hundreds and hundreds of case from here to Dondale, which is in Darwin. Yeah. So it means that kids can be removed from their families and communities really easily. You know, people, mm-hmm. their families can't go and visit them, um, which is contrary to the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Yeah. Um, it's given the guards greater um, power to use force at their own discretion. So um, in the law, it's whether the guard considers, you know, considers it a time to use force now. Yeah. Um, so it's that's a that's a huge worry, and that's contrary to um, what the Royal Commission says. So the guards just have discretion to use it, and um, yeah. So they're really they're really worrying laws. Um, yeah, I heard that um, they were retroactive is that, as well. Yeah, they're retrospective. Retrospective, <laughs> that's the, the word I was like, I'm pretty that. sure that's not the right word, but we'll go with it. They're retrospective laws. So um, what what we saw in November last year um, was an uprising in Dondale where, um, and you would have seen the media there, there's a lot of media about riots in Dondale. Yeah. Um, so... Um, young people rose up, they took the keys from the guards, um, they took over, like the schoolhouse was burnt down, there's a lot of things that happened that night. Um, those kids, in response, and later the CCTV footage came out and there was less of a media storm around that, but in the CCTV footage it's got um, guards and police going into prison with armoured vehicles, um, semi-automatic weapons um, to supposedly calm down the uprising. Um, those kids were, in November, those kids were then locked in the watch house, Darwin watch house for days, you know, not given changes of clothes, not, you know, it was really severe abuses going on for those children during those days. But um, what we kind of see is that there's been the Gunner government has been mistreating kids. Mm-hmm. You know, We've, last year in May last year, the Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre was in the top ten of overcrowded prisons globally. So we know that the government, Gunner government, has been continuing to mistreat kids since they've been in power, and this law allows them retrospectively to <coughs> avoid um, avoid prosecution mm-hmm. for the abuses and torture of kids inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so it's a bit of a worry. <coughs> but no one knows about it. You know, I've been going around um, talking to families of young people that are inside, you know, since they've come out to try to talk to people about this new law and mm-hmm. no one knows knows about it yet because she pushed it through so fast. And that's that's a big, a big worry for everyone. Next week we're having a community meeting in town just to get everyone educated on what this new law means for um, families and communities here in Alice Springs. Because 75% of kids that are locked up are from <coughs> Australia. So these new powers of transfer mean that, you know, kids go into Dondale, which they will go, which they will go because the Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre has a small 
number of beds compared to Dondale. So mm-hmm. kids, kids get transferred up there a lot. Um, it just affects a lot of a lot of people here from Central Australia. Yeah, I know there was talk in the media. I think about closing Dondale. Has there been any movement on that? No, no. She's made no, um, she's made no movement on that. She said she will. Has Dale Wakefield? Gunner has said he'll close Dondale. That was the major recommendation of the Royal Commission. You know, Dondale was closed because it was an adult prison. Mm-hmm. It was deemed unfit for adults. It's riddled with asbestos. It's a it's a horrible place. And um, they opened it as a youth prison, and they continue to open it. You know, so it hasn't it hasn't been closed. It's got no no timeline for that. And Merit, this is M here. Um, you know, and this is, I guess, sitting here in in Nam on Kulin land. You know, it's so important to be hearing about what's happening up in the NT. But I also just want to sort of draw a connection to, I guess, stuff that's happening here in Victoria and the importance yeah. of drawing connections with, you know, that that also this sort of stuff and prisons against kids and the the abuses and the lack of transparency um, is obviously also going on here. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about whether, you know, stuff that's happening here or just or connections or seeing this as also a broader struggle against, I mean, against prisons and against prisons against children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess there's, there's worries about the new prison, the new youth prison you've got there, hey? Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. <laughs> what's, what's happening with Cherry Creek? Yeah, so Cherry Creek um, is a, kid, a prison against children plan to be built out uh, Werribee Way, for listeners who don't know. Um, and works have commenced on the site. That's sort of the most recent update. Yeah, that's really, really worrying for all of the young people there in Nam too, um, and around Victoria. Uh, I guess there's there's a lot of bad things that happen to young people around the country in youth prisons. Um, it's not just the NT. There's a lot of media that gets um, done about the NT because we have that Royal Commission. That Royal Commission should have really been for youth prison nationally. Nationally, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Like we've got um, like the same the same week as kids up rose up in Dondale. The kids rose up in the youth prison in Brisbane too. Mm-hmm. So um, it doesn't. It's there's really atrocious things that's been happening. So, yeah, it's definitely not just on Dale and um, it's not just here in the NT that we've got to be worried about young people and and people in general who are locked up, you know. Mm-hmm. Prisons are not the answer that for safety within our communities. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks so much for your time. And maybe, Mr. Merritt, how can, how can folks find out more um, and also support what's going on up there? You can... Uh, there's a lot of good media out at the moment, um, so keeping on top of the media is good. Uh, we've got a Shut Youth Prisons Facebook page too that you can search. Uh, and But probably the best thing to do is once you've educated yourself a little bit around these, this new legislation, um, calling up Gunner, Michael Gunner, and calling up Dale Wakefield would be the best thing to do. Cool. Thanks so much for your time. Again, Merritt, it was really great um, to have this chat with you. No worries. Thank you. Thanks. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. 
They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. You're on 3CR, Thursday breakfast. It's almost 8.30, so we're going to wrap up. Um, so this morning... Oh, wait, just before we wrap up, actually, so <laughs> I just saw we have a message from a caller that said, thanks for the Japarong info. Um, but he also wants to remind listeners that it's super important to keep up uh, to keep up support and stay alert, as we know from experience how government agencies use holidays to sneak in last-minute changes and move and move on when they say they won't. So um, be on guard. And it's also the stop work is just uh, before Anzac Day, which is on the 25th. Um, so extra alert needed from government actions. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much for that. So yeah. important. Um, so, yeah, we had a jam-packed show today. We chatted with Shantha about um, disability rights in Australia, with Carolyn from ASRC around stuff that's going on with um, changes to SSRS and other payments, and then just then to Merit um, from around youth prisons and NT, as well as some great audio from the Muslim Solidarity Rally and some updates about Jabberwung. We have run out of time, though, so have a great day, everyone. Stay tuned for Lost in Science. We'll be back next Thursday, and breakfast will be back tomorrow. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.